This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette. I've been a fan of Jason since the Cooking Channel show. This is something that really inspired me to move to L.A. to really take a deep dive into the plant-based business and turn my lifestyle into a business. I am so elated that you had the opportunity to do that and to really set the path for so many things that are happening in the media and just making sure that plant-based is just not the butt of pop culture jokes. You have so many things that have gone for you since then, but I really wanted to highlight that because that was just so pivotal. But let's get back a little bit further. Let's go to like childhood and growing up. What are your earliest exposures to wellness and the path that you're on now that made you you know, go down this path? Parents, friends, teachers, TV, what you got? Yeah, that's a great starting point. My relationship to wellness and food was pretty interesting because growing up, my parents figured out pretty quickly that I was lactose intolerant since birth. So my relationship with dairy products was always fraught with, okay, if I'm going to eat these, it's going to feel like a chainsaw in my intestines. And, you know, growing up in Detroit in the 80s, we didn't have access to what we have now, right? We didn't have oat milk. We didn't have almond milk. I think there was one... I think there was like one soy milk brand. It was like Eden Soy. For any old school vegans in here, if y- if y'all go back to like the 90s or 80s at all, that was kind of the dark ages. We didn't have many options. So a- as a young, young child, you know, having this lactose intolerance, it required a lot of navigation in terms of food choices. But I didn't really start having a mindfulness beyond that around my food until my grandfather was passing away from cancer. I had just celebrated my 18th birthday graduated uh, high school in Detroit and my grandfather was dying and I remember the interesting reaction my family had to my grandfather dying was kind of like yeah that's just what happens you know you get old you get a disease you die this is just what happens it was a very kind of nonchalant attitude for most of the people in my family and I found that reaction to be so odd to me like what do you mean this is just what happens you get one of the most horrible diseases on earth we're supposed to accept that as like an inevitable reality of life that reaction just really hit me in a very strange and unusual way but after my grandfather lost his battle to cancer I basically started to zoom out Lynette and, and look at my eating habits my family's eating habits the smoking, the chewing tobacco, the drinking alcohol. To be honest, none of us were really taking good care of ourselves. I was the dude who would go to Wendy's and get a triple on the menu. And people, people, pe- people don't even know you could get a triple, right? That's an off-menu item at Wendy's. Like You can walk up to a Wendy's <laughs> and you can give them a wink and be like, I'll, I'll, I'll take a triple. And if the person knows what you mean, they will give you a triple patty at Wendy's. I was oh that my. dude. That's like in and out like the secret menu. Like it's so many things. Oh my gosh. For okay. real. <laughs> right. So I was, I was that guy. That was my mode. I was beyond just standard American diet in my teens. I was like junk food-itarian. I, I was like going out of my way to eat pretty bad. And again, you know, growing up in Detroit, which always has my heart as my home city, it, it has struggled with being a food desert. There's a lot of socioeconomic, sociopolitical factors. We could break down food deserts and food inequality. We could spend a whole episode on that. But in Detroit, even to this day, there are a lot of parts of the city that the residents can't get local healthy food options. Back in the 90s, when I was doing this, it certainly was worse back then. So long story short, my grandfather dies. I go on this mission 
to find out as much as I can about the effects of food and lifestyle on our health. Because I was like, I don't want to get cancer. I don't want to waste away and die like my grandfather. It, it, it shook me emotionally, honestly. And three years later, between 1995 and 1998, after this three-year crazy research bins, and, and y'all got to remember, like, in the mid-90s, we had internet, but it was the dial-up, like, beep, doo doo beep, 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 I used to have to ask my grandmother, like, I'm like, Grandma, can I use <laughs> can I use the internet? And it wasn't even shit on there, really. It was just, like, out, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and so I'm trying to do this research. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, plant-based nutritional studies. I think the only two people at that time that I knew of that I could find work by was Dr. Neil Bernard from PCRM and Dr. Dean Ornish. Those were the only two cats I could find that had any clinical studies around the effects of plant-based eating on health. It's just two guys. So I'm voraciously researching and I start just taking out one animal product at a time, right? I take out pork, I take out eggs, I take out chicken, I take out beef. And over the course of three years, I go from being a junk foodarian to standing in my mother's kitchen in Detroit right before my 21st birthday. It was May of 98. And I said, mom, I gotta, I gotta talk to you about something. And my mom was like, what? She could sense something was up. And I said, um, <clears throat> I think I'm vegan now. Like, I couldn't even believe I was saying it. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? My mind couldn't even, because that wasn't the goal. The goal was just to learn and research as much as I could wrap my mind around more holistic living, plant eating. You know, like I said, eliminating animal products and replacing those with other nutrient-dense foods. And... To my surprise, my mom's reaction, she looked at me and she was like, I support this. I was like, you do? She said, yeah, I support this. I just want to make sure that you understand that you're going to do this in a healthy way. Because if you go off eating Oreos and ramen noodles and, and, and shit like that, I'm not going to let you do this in my household. I was like, okay, cool. So four months later, my mom goes vegan. My mom's still vegan to this day, 23 years later. My cousin's vegan, my aunt's vegan, my uncle's heading in that direction. So my whole family who is back in Metro Detroit over the course of the years, also adopted either a vegan, totally vegan, or a plant-based diet. So in a nutshell, that's kind of my origin story. But from a food sense, Lynette, since you asked about my upbringing, my mom's side, Polish, Italian, Ashkenazi Jew. So that was a really interesting Italian food, Polish food, a little bit of Jewish food, not too much. But then on my dad's side, it was Puerto Rican and Spanish. So we were having rice and beans and mofongo and things like that. So my culinary upbringing was, was pretty funky. You don't see like Polish Puerto Rican food being served at the same table a lot of the time, you know? <laughs> wow. I mean, it might be a vibe. Can you veganize that and just do like a whole mashup plate? I, I, I see something. Have you worked on that yet? <laughs> uh, it's funny you say that because years ago, somebody said you need to do a Polish Puerto Rican vegan cookbook. I was like, who's going to buy it? Like 12 people? Like, what's the demand for a Polish-Puerto Rican vegan cookbook? They're like, you'd be surprised. So I think I'm going to call it Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican vegan. Oh, oh my gosh, that would be amazing. There's a lot of power in, like, little niches of things. You could be surprised where it's just, like, it's a whole group of, like, Polish-Puerto Rican people, and they will pay top dollar because they never <laughs> even, you know? Literally, the niches, the mass stuff, okay, yeah, you can, like, charge, like, $5 or a dollar. But, like, the Polish-Puerto Rican vegans, they feel heard. Ooh, you can get like $50 for that. I don't know. I don't even know what you're selling, but it could be $50 <laughs> as opposed to five for the masses. So. <laughs> it happened right here. Today it was born. Today, this moment, it was born. That the Puerto is... Rican vegan movement. <laughs>
I want to shift into kind of the opposite end of the spectrum because it sounds like you got a lot of support, you had a lot of good healthy indicators of, of things, and it sounds like some people in the family definitely hopped on the veggie train as well, but there's always opposition. And I would love to know moving through this change and transition where was the family opposition because that's a really big thing a lot of folks is like well how do I deal with my husband or wife or how do I deal with my family members the judgment the big protein question you know how do you continue to manage with your loved ones because they'll make something that you grew up on and then all of a sudden you don't want it anymore and they get insulted. just the whole nine yards how did you really deal with that early on well, in the beginning, when I made that transition in 1998, my mom was supportive, which was great because I was living with my mom at the time, but my extended family, their reaction was either, I'm trying to remember what they said. They thought I had either joined a cult or I was abducted by aliens. They're like, what is a, what is a vegan? What's a vegan? You got to remember like the nineties in Detroit, being a vegan was like, you were from another planet, literally. So... My extended family's reaction was very, they were kind of in vociferous opposition. They're like, this is weird, man. Like, what are we going to do at holidays? Are you going to make your own food? Do we have to eat your mashed parsnips? Like, what the hell is that? What are you going to do instead of butter? What are you going to do instead of cheese? They were very concerned, but also like in opposition to it. And one of the reasons that I decided to really learn how to cook for myself was A, I wanted to make sure that I was doing this in an extremely nutritionally balanced way and also in a creative enough way that I would keep myself interested, right? Here I am taking out foods that I had eaten my entire life for 22 decades of my life, just wiping the slate clean. So cooking was originally like, I wanna make sure I'm doing this in a nutrient dense way, I wanna make sure it's creative and interesting. But the other motivation for learning how to cook vegan food well was I was like, all right, auntie, all right, you're talking a lot of shit, Auntie. You're talking, you're talking too much shit, Auntie. Okay, you're talking too much shit. Too much. So I was like, how am I gonna, how, how am I, you know, not gonna just like shut her up? I didn't want to just shut her down, but I wanted to show her what was possible, right? So one of the things, for better or for worse, my entire life that's motivated me is kind of a chip on my shoulder. I've always felt like the underdog you know, grew up in an economically challenged family in the city of Detroit. You tell me, you know, I can't do something, I'm gonna prove to you I can do it. So mm. the more that my family pushed back, the more I wanted to show them, all right, okay, oh, oh, you, oh, you say I can't make a meatloaf. Oh, how are you gonna make a meatloaf, Jason? Oh, I'm gonna show you how I'm gonna make a vegan meatloaf. Let me work on it, give me a few months and I will show you. So that was a big part of my motivation and I, I realized that I made the connection once I started feeding my family, going to the holidays, bringing them meals and showing them what was possible. I remember the first Thanksgiving when I did like a vegan turkey. It was basically like a turkey loaf that I had made out of tofu and tempeh and spices. And it made these beautiful turkey breasts with a mushroom gravy and just deluxe all the Ooh, sides. Sounds <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> candied yams, Brussels sprouts, mashed potatoes. I went berserker that first Thanksgiving. I was like, I'm gonna show you guys what we can do, all right? So I started to notice slowly over the years that their minds started opening. They started yapping their jaws less, you know, it was, oh, okay, this is actually really good. Like I saw that food could be used as a tool of activism. And to that point, I was going to protests in Detroit. I was going to like the Neiman Marcus fur protests. If anybody knows or 
whether you agree with his politics or not, who Gary Yarovsky is. He, he is an old, old friend, and I started going to protest with Gary. But I started to notice that food, for me, was a much more effective tool to change people's minds than being on the side of the road screaming at them for wearing fur and eating meat. I'm not saying that that isn't a reasonable form of activism. I did it for years, but I just saw food as like, oh, this can change people's minds. This can change their hearts. So that was really the jump for me, Lynette, was to learn how to make food and make it well. I saw it as a tool for activism and changing people. Yeah, absolutely, because it's something that we all do. And I'm sure that you've heard this a lot. I hear this all the time. I love hearing what I'm about to say. When people are so far on the other side of the plant-based spectrum and they have some of my food or they have something else from someone else that is just super delicious, they're like, wow, if I had this all the time, I could totally be vegan. I love that because it literally has turned people around and it really proves the point. Hey, if it tastes really good, people are going to go for it and they're going to open their minds. I never forget seeing a... um episode of the Simpsons there was something about eating food and then I think like Bart Simpson or someone said something about kale or green smoothie and then everyone just made barf noises you know it was just very like sophomoric but it was driving that subliminal point home that this stuff doesn't taste good and I think that that's something that people don't realize has so much power because then when people actually have something that they really enjoy they're so surprised but then the good part about it is that they're so surprised and then they're super excited you know to dive in <laughs> yeah no legit and i think that's still to this day one of the probably four to five most pervasive myths about eating and living this way right like the protein question will probably never die. I feel like I'm going to be, you know, 99 years old. Oh, did you get enough protein today, Jason? Yeah, I'm good, bro. I'm 99. Like, leave it alone. I'm cool. So I feel like the protein question is one. The second is what you just said, Lynette, which is, oh, it's going to taste like cardboard. It's going to taste like wood ash. Once people get the food in their mouths, I have had so many conversations with incredible chefs like you that like taste is the bottom line. For most people, health is not the bottom line. For most people, yep. taste is. They want their pleasure. They want the sensorial experience of the taste and the texture and the mouthfeel and the aroma. So if we can concentrate and know that human nature being what it is, people seek pleasure, people seek comfort, people seek familiarity. So if we can create dishes that hit comfort, that hit pleasure, that hit familiarity, Woo! And then we make sure we sneak in the goji berries, we make sure we sneak in the hemp seeds, we make sure we sneak in the nutrient-dense plant foods, like then they're getting the best of all worlds. And that certainly is my, my culinary philosophy. And the other thing too I wanted to say since you brought up Matt Groening from the, the Simpsons, so I actually used to coach his wife with nutrition years ago, Augustina. <laughs> Small world, see that? <laughs> so dig this. So she is, I don't know if she's 100% plant-based. When I was working with her about 10 years ago in 2011, she was. And then my former assistant, one of my best friends, Michelle, was her chef, fully plant-based for about six years. So the backstory is, they're eating a lot of plants in that household. Okay. I, just I say knew that. it. I knew. I, I knew it, and I was totally like talking offhand. Like you go to craft services, <laughs> the Simpson, and it's probably all the green smoothies, and then everyone's making the joke about it. <laughs> and you kind of prove the point. Of course, if she's yeah. on board, then she's probably bringing the husband on board as it as it goes and as it should. Well, I want to actually send it a little bit into a similar lane. You have a cookbook 
and I want to talk a little bit about it. And I would love if you could share one that's like really easy because some people, you're just, oh my God, it has to be easy. And tell us a little bit about your book as well. So the book is called Eternity, E-A-T, it's a pun, Eternity. It's more than 150 really, really easy and delicious vegan recipes. So it's about 400 pages. It's a long book. And here's why. Some people are like, oh God, a long book. What I wanted to do and what I wanted to accomplish with this book was to not only give a wide variety of recipes, but the way that I organized it, and this is probably one of the, the, the most unique parts of it, rather than organizing it by you know entrees, desserts, breakfast foods, soups, salads, kind of the traditional categories, the chapters are eat for better sex, eat for good sleep, eat for weight loss, eat for detox, eat for more muscle, eat for immunity eat for strong eyesight, eat for less stress. And the reason I did it this way is I wanted to make sure that all of the ingredients and all of the recipes in those chapters had functional nutritional benefits to support those goals in life. Like, you, okay, chapter one, eat for better sex. I mean, we made it chapter one for a reason. People go right there like, okay, yes, of course. Who doesn't want that? So in, in a chapter like Eat for Better Sex, I talk a lot about how things like avocado, I've got a really, really simple chocolate avocado jungle peanut pudding recipe. It's probably one of the, the basic vegan desserts you can start with, like a, a dank, amazing chocolate avocado pudding. Well, why is that so important? What, is, what does avocado do for our sex life? Well, first of all, avocado has tons of heart-healthy fat. It's got vitamin B6 and it's got potassium, which actually helps to boost energy. hormone levels and provide more energy. And then, of course, we know about cacao. Raw chocolate has tons of magnesium. It's the highest natural source of magnesium. Magnesium helps with blood energy. flow. So here's the thing. If you have good blood flow, you've got a healthy heart. Well, that blood flow is going to flow to all of the parts we need it to. So the whole point of this book was to not only give people really delicious, easy vegan recipes, but show them why those recipes are beneficial for their health and what it could help them accomplish. So in terms of picking out two recipes, I already called out one. God, there's 154 recipes. How can I even pick two? Okay, here's a fun one that people like. I have a cauliflower popcorn recipe. Some people are like, I don't really want to eat corn for their own reasons. Maybe they're allergic to corn. But I've got a super simple oven-baked popcorn recipe made out of cheesy cauliflower. And it's super good. It's super easy. Cauliflower is amazing because cauliflower is high in phytochemicals, right? And those phytochemicals are called glucosinates. And gl glucosinates are basically broken down in the intestines into isothionates and indo-3-carbonyl. I'm getting super geeky here. But basically what these antioxidants do is help regulate the body's detoxification enzymes and protect you against cancer, right? So it's like, wait, I'm having this cheesy cauliflower popcorn and it is helping me detoxify and potentially protect me against cancer. Well, this is the best popcorn ever. So that's my whole philosophy with food is like, if we can educate people about not only what to make, but why to make it and what it's gonna do for your body, then I'm, I'm on cloud nine. Then I'm like, yay, everyone's getting nutrition education. Everyone's learning about what their food can do for them because none of us learn this shit in school. Almost nobody. So that's my whole philosophy with the cookbook because I want to really teach people not only these great recipes, but why they're good for you too. Exactly. I mean, that's why I started Superfood School literally because this is the first time in human history where we can't go to our elders. We cannot. You can get support from them, but generally speaking, they just don't know. And that's a part of why, you know, our our job is so, so, so important. Um, 
I want to take it a step back. So the cookbook is out. So definitely grab it and enjoy it and tag him and flourish, right? But I want to take it a couple step backs to the show on um, the cooking channel, because again, this was so groundbreaking. And you talk about how the 90s was a little bit sketchy for plant-based and wellness, but this is just now starting to hit the mainstream within the past like two years. So I'd love to know how your show came about, some of the opposition that was faced and some of the good things that happened. Yeah. So the TV series was like a crazy surreal acid trip. I mean, it was like, is this really happening? I mean, I remember just as that whole thing was unfolding, it was such a magical, beautiful experience that I will always cherish. The origin story behind it real quick. So I started my YouTube channel in 2009 and I was really cranking out a lot of YouTube videos in that time. Uh, and that was the early days. There, there were not a lot of vegan creators on YouTube in that time frame when I started in 09. I think there was like maybe two or three other people that I knew. And now, of course, I mean, you look at YouTube, there's thousands of vegan content creators. But 09, I think I started like right after the four-year anniversary of YouTube. And, you know... YouTube had been going, but it wasn't the juggernaut that it is today. So I start cranking out videos on YouTube. I'm doing like stand-up comedy. I'm being my weird self. I don't, people were like, you're kind of like Jim Carrey and Alton Brown. You're just kind of like crazy. So I'm bringing this crazy energy and I'm doing my thing. And I start to get booked for conferences and health conferences, vegan festivals, because people found me on YouTube. So I'm going and I'm doing my tour. I'm doing my, my lectures and my food demos. And... At one of the conferences, it was David Wolf's Longevity Now conference. One of the producers of the conference was like, hey, my daughter is in TV production and she's been looking for a vegetarian or vegan chef to create a TV series. Can I put you in touch with her? I was like, sure, let, let's do it, cool. So I get in touch with her, her name's Alana. She's a producer for this production company called Crazy Legs Productions in New York City and Atlanta. We get the ball rolling. She's dope. I love her. It's totally simpatico. And we start creative concepting ideas. And the first company that we pitched to was Animal Planet. Because at that time, Animal Planet had gone to her and her production company and said, we want to do a TV series, a cooking show that doesn't use animals. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Interesting. So we created a whole pitch package pilot. I even wrote the theme song. Like I have the theme song still for this thing. Did the whole nine, submit it to Animal Planet, and they go, he's not what we're looking for. And we're like, what, what do you mean? Like, they said, he's not, he's not enough like a Midwestern lumberjack. We're looking for somebody with a Midwestern lumberjack vibe. What? <laughs> okay. I'm like, I am from the Midwest, but I'm certainly not looking like a lumberjack these days. If you want a dude that looks like the brownie paper towel guy... That's right, the brawny, yeah, that's the, the yeah, brawny, brawny paper right. towel guy. I'm not that dude. I'm not your dude. So Animal Planet passed. But at that same time, we were also pitching other networks. And Food Network, who is the parent company of Cooking Channel, they said, we love him. Love his vibe. He's wacky. He's funny. He reminds us of a young Robin Williams. Let's talk. Okay, so cool. So we get the ball rolling. They greenlight the pilot. But here's the thing. Okay, you talked about pushback, right? The original concept that we had pitched to Food Network was a bit too crazy for them. They're like, we had puppets, we had sets, 
We had indoor gardens. We had me like we had a spaceship set. We had we. It was crazy. It was sort of like what? no, for real. It was it was nothing like what finally aired. Like we went in and we swung for the fences. It was like it was like Pee Wee's Playhouse meets the Muppets meets uh, a cooking show, and everyone's you know just it, everyone's on psychedelics. I mean, it was crazy. I like that. I like that. <laughs> So we pitch it and they were like, we don't really have the budget for this. And we think it's a little too out there. We're like, all right, well, let's scale it back. So we scaled it way back. And that concept eventually became How to Live to 100. And it was essentially sketch comedy meets cooking show with some animation thrown in. So there were some elements from the original concept, but it was, it was a little bit diluted from the original wackiness. So we shoot the pilot. The pilot goes on the air in January of 2013. It was one of the highest rated pilots in the history of Cooking Channel. So they greenlit a full season. Go to Atlanta, shoot the full season. Full season goes live in January of 2014, one year later. It's going well, doing the tour, the press tour, going around talking about the show, promoting it on social. People are freaking out because they're like, oh my God, there's an actual vegan cooking show on Cooking Channel, it was on Food Network Canada at the same time, and it was just a whirlwind. You know, it was, it was like one of those dreams come true where you're kind of caught up in it and you're watching it happening, and it's like the Truman Show. It's like, what is, oh my God, this is crazy. So what ended up happening was after the first season concluded, I got a phone call from one of the directors of programming at Food Network, and they said, hey, we need to have a conversation. I was like, cool, 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 are we doing season two? Like said, we're, not, we're actually not going to move forward. I was like, whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, why are we not? I mean, the pilot did great. I thought season one did great. And they said, yeah, the, the ratings were not what we hoped for, but that's actually not necessarily why we're not going to greenlight a season two. I said, okay, we'll explain. They said, we thought people were more ready for this plant-based stuff than we thought they were, but our audience at Food Network and Cooking Channel you know, they really want like burgers, brats, and beer. I quote, they want burgers, brats, and beer. I said, you know, I did an episode with vegan burgers, right? And you, you know, I can do a vegan sausage and brat from scratch and there's vegan beers. Like I had this uh, semi-contentious conversation with them because I kind of felt like their reasons were a little bit bullshit. You know, I, I understand what you're saying, but you know, I can do all that vegan, right? I just did that in the pilot in the whole first season. So their justification was people wanted diners, drive-ins, and dives. They wanted barbecue. They wanted carnage. You know, they wanted just meat, 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 and beer. And I was like, okay. So it was, it was heartbreaking, you know, because I had put so many years into that concept, so many years on the air. But I'm proud of it. I mean, I, I overall, overall, I felt very supported throughout that entire process, shepherding that concept to reality. I was treated very well. The ending was a little bit, you know, not what I wanted. And I also feel in that, you know, it, it, was, it was a little early. I feel like if the show was out now, I feel like the response would be different. But in, you know, 2012 to 2015, when the, the series was on, you know, I think it was maybe a little bit too early. Totally, totally, totally. I, I definitely agree. It's one of those things that was a drop into, you know, the collective consciousness of this movement that we have now. And absolutely it was too early. And you think like that was just a few years ago. I would say that would have had to be made within like the last like two years. 
It's as far as legit two years. And I think right now, you know, it's coming to a point of, of, of that happening. So it's interesting to hear the backstory about how you had these treatments and just everything. <laughs> the storyboards sound wild as hell and I love it. And that's what makes me think that, you know, there's some other things down the line eventually for you for TV or screen or anything like that. Do you have any ideas and stuff? It's interesting you ask that because do I have concepts? Absolutely. There, there's been a concept for a a puppet show that is not the same concept as How to Live to 100, but basically I look at this. Great puppet shows or great programming. You mentioned The Simpsons, right? I know grown adults who watch The Simpsons. I know small children who watch The Simpsons. You know, back in my day, it was, it was The Muppet Show, right? I would sit down with my entire family and watch The Muppet Show, you know, kids all the way up to adults. And so for me, there's something about comedy and entertainment that can deliver very challenging messages to people. Because I found that when, when you get someone laughing or you're entertaining someone, they're energetically open to receive new ideas and information. I've literally watched it, you know, I'll be on a stage doing my spiel, doing my stand up and my cooking, and I'll see someone, you know, in that second row with their arms folded, you know, I'm not receiving, I'm here because my wife wanted me to be here. Uh -huh. I don't really want to be here. <laughs> you know that dude, that dude whose arms folded, I don't want to be here but you get someone laughing and you create something that's relatable that opens their defenses up. That's my whole thing. That's, that, that's the whole, I think, foundation of how I wanna do this and move forward with it. So I absolutely do have a concept. I've been writing episodes for about two to three years now. I have a whole document of like treatments for like 20, 30 episodes. And when the time is right, I will probably find a, a, the right production company and put it out there. But I don't know that it's gonna be TV again because you know, when, when my series was out, Lynette, one of the biggest things and the biggest challenges that I had with the network is I got hundreds of messages from people all around the world saying, I want to watch your cooking show. How can I watch it? It's not online. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing the CEO of Cooking Channel, Michael Smith, and I said, Michael, I'm getting hundreds of emails and DMs from people around the world who want to watch the show. Can we put it online? And he said, no, our distribution deal is this, and it can only be, like, only U.S. And, Ca and Canada can watch it. So, mind you, this was 2014, 2015, and they were not ahead of the curve on streaming. They were not ahead of the curve on online content. I feel now, if we had just gone straight to online with that series, then people all over the world could have watched it. And we could have had it, you know, keep going. I think traditional TV as a platform, I don't know that it's dying, but legit, look at Netflix, look at Hulu, look at, you yeah. know, Peacock TV, yeah. look at all these streaming services. Like traditional TV is kind of a dinosaur that is in a slow death spiral, I think. So moving forward, I only want to focus on either streaming content or online exclusively, because I think that is, that is the now and that is the future. Eternity is the book that's out now. He's also co-host of a podcast. So for all of those are, that are thinking like, okay, I definitely want to hear from this guy more. He's such a wealth of information and it's so much more than food. You know, it's just overall wellness. So I definitely suggest that you tap in to his podcast. And that is called This Might Get Uncomfortable. So I'm sure that you can expect a lot of breakthroughs, a lot of aha moments and yeah, all that good stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about the podcast? Yeah, I'm happy to. So this might get uncomfortable was 
born out of my desire to extend the conversation beyond food and nutrition. I was actually diagnosed with clinical depression eight years ago. And it has been a really interesting journey to manage my mental health and keep myself sane and healthy. Whereas food is a part of that. It's a big part of it. It's not the whole puzzle. It's not the whole picture. So this might get uncomfortable was really born out of the idea of, well, what if our mental and emotional health is also about having really open conversations and not hiding, trying to combat the shame we feel, the guilt we feel for struggling with our mental health or struggling with things that we have never opened up about. And so we have a variety of topics. We've got about, God, 255 episodes at this point, and we cover everything under the sun. We talk about neurobiology. We talk about food. We talk about attachment styles and relationships. We talk about the importance, like I said, of getting through shame when talking about mental health. So it really does have the foundation of mental health and emotional wellness, but we do cover an unbelievable plethora of topics. So if y'all want to take a listen, I would be humbled and grateful. We're, we're still pretty small and growing, but it was really Lynette, you know, my desire to talk about more than just food. When we're talking about wellness and health, it's got to be a multifaceted conversation. So it was just my whole thing of like, yep, I'm doing the chef thing. I got my food going on, but I really want to talk about relationships or I want to talk about polyamory or I want to talk about sex. I want to talk about mental health. I want to talk about money and our relationship to money. So we cover, we cover a lot of ground, y'all. A lot of ground. Okay. All right. You guys heard it. You definitely covered a lot of ground. And this is such a great segue for my talks that I always kind of throw out there and it's called what's your woo woo. (laughs) So what's your woo woo is basically kind of some of the things that you employ into your life. What's in your woo woo wellness toolkit? What are some of the things that you do on a regular basis that you have been able to really see the effects of whether it's meditation, running, what is it dream work? I don't, I don't know. What's your rule? I'll go from mild to wild. Okay. (laughs) So when I say mild, I don't mean less effective when I say mild. I just mean something that's maybe more mainstream in terms of its practice. So you said meditation. I have been actively meditating for a decade. I don't want to say I don't miss a day, but it's a near daily practice for me to sit down in the corner of my bedroom, or if I'm on the road and I'm touring and and speaking, I will make a little, a little meditation nook in my hotel room, but daily meditation in the morning before the phone goes on, before the computer goes on, before I feed the army of animals at my house, my beautiful babies, like I got to take that 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is, you don't have to do that much. Even 10 minutes a day has been shown to be beneficial. But meditation, it's been a game changer for me in terms of my mental health and my spiritual practice. I'm also a huge fan of journaling. I feel like beyond working with my therapist, who's an amazing therapist, I don't work with him every single day. So part of my therapy is getting in my journal and just free form writing, like not even thinking about it, just whatever wants to come out of my body organically and onto that paper, that's what's going to happen. So daily journaling has also been a huge savior. Now, if we want to go to the wild side, right? I have had a lot of great breakthroughs with my mental health in the last eight years after my clinical depression diagnosis, but I've also had a lot of roadblocks. 
And with those roadblocks, I have explored things like ayahuasca journeying, which was really transformative for me. I've also done, I'm currently doing actually microdosing of psilocybin mushrooms because taking a very, very small amount each day, I have found for me in the past month and a half since I started really, this is new for me, microdosing, is I'm able to handle stress better. I'm sleeping better. I don't have as many like manic episodes with my emotional health. So microdosing psilocybin has been great. And what I'm going to do next actually is my therapist is going to be facilitating uh, MDMA therapy with me. So you can now get pharmaceutical, clinical, legal MDMA because there's some deeper psychological issues. There's some deeper traumas from my life that have been sticky, really tough for me to address. So I'm a huge fan of plant medicines when used with the right intention and the right container. So that's more of the wild side, the ayahuasca, the psilocybin, the MDMA. I think for my body, plant medicine has been tremendously transformative. Oh man. Okay. So basically everything that he just said is everything that I employ as well. So I plus one to all of it. And I really appreciate the fact that you said that it's every morning, ideally, but sometimes like you might miss. I really appreciate that. Spreading the wealth and wellness and continuing to do so. Yeah, I just appreciate it so much, Lynette. I, I feel such a kinship with you, your positivity, your love, your joyfulness just comes through. And yeah, b basically the biggest thing right now that I am focusing on, working on is the podcast. So if anyone wants to jump in, again, the name is This Might Get Uncomfortable. And that is on all of the podcast platforms, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify. So you can just Google my name like Jason Robel Podcast and it'll come up too. But that's really the main focus right now. And um, like I said, working on that puppet show concept and, and getting that ready for prime time. So thank you so much for having me. And I'm very, very easy to stalk and DM and email. So if anybody wants to shoot me an email, it's very simple. It's jason at jasonrobel.com. All right, you guys heard it. Get to stalking. All right. <laughs> Learn more at superfoodschool.org.